Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's a Tuesday morning, and uh, been a little out of commission for a few days. I went to um, Cleveland for Sunday by the chassan of a, a former student of mine, Elio Ashakis. It was a nice wedding, and, uh, and that was the first time I was ever in Cleveland, actually, and at least as far as I remember, and uh, I do want to um, thank, I couldn't have made it, because I'm walking around still with a cane, you know, so I have to really thank Ira Friedman for coming along and helping me, being my Sancho Panza, and to uh, Menachem, oh boy, yeah, and Menachem Tenenbaum in Cleveland for driving us around, so thanks to all, it was a nice wedding. Now, um, Today's podcast, so I've been a little out of it, and today's podcast is being sponsored by uh, by David Feinkech, who is sponsored before. He tells me he moved recently, and this is, he's doing Lezecher Nishmas, his father, the yard site for his father is tomorrow, I think, the last day of Cheshwin, um, I guess, uh, what do you call it? Yeah, Thursday's already Rosh Chodesh, so tomorrow, tomorrow's the, um, the yard site. Uh, Nelson Ben Shmuel, Natan Ben Shmuel, the yard site, and Sham Shamaliyah. And thank you to David, who has moved up to where was it? Uh, I forget already, Poughkeepsie, somewhere up there. Um, okay, now, who am I, today I'm going to do a bio. Uh, I wrote to Ari Elba when I came back and said, Who's the yard site this week? And one of them was the Malas Atura, who's the brother of Vilnagon, Avram, the brother of Vilnagon. And I started to think about maybe doing that. Although the Miles of Torah is, you know, kind of monochrome. But then I said to myself, this all happened last the 12 hours. I said, um, Avram, it's more interesting to do the Vilnagon's son, whose name was Avram. And that's what I think I'm going to do today. Because it's a very interesting character. Again, this is the son of Vilnagon, no, no less. Here we're going to take into the side some of the uh, I wouldn't call it controversial, but you know, but you know, some of the interesting sides of uh, of the Vilnagon, who really is a kind of a forbidding and austere figure that people sort of you know don't see as a person, because the truth of the matter is somebody who learns twenty three out of twenty four hours a day is not a normal person, is not a regular person. That's why they always held him in such gigantic regard. I mean, he hit the top of whatever you can hit in terms of learning, right? So, um, and uh, I'm only going to say his biographer is better or worse, <clears throat> but I want to talk about one of his kids. But let's talk about, if I can use this expression a little bit, the human side of the Vilna Gaon, if such a thing is possible to retrieve. Uh, and it, it only a little bit it is. Uh, but I'm talking about basic facts. So the Vilna Gaon died, I think it was born in 1720, something like that, and died in the end of the 1700s, like, 1797, 1798, something along those lines. I forget, you know, seven, I think it was 1797 on Chalmai if I remember correctly. Anyway, so that means that somebody who lived, he didn't make it to 80, he lived in the late 70s. Just let's start with some basic 
stuff over here because whenever you talk about people, you have to get your basic facts right. So let's talk about um, somebody who lived long, you know, a, a life of 75, 80 years old. Okay? The Vilna Gon had um, eight children. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, it's five and three, five girls and three boys. He clearly was trying for a son. And that was only the fifth child. So, he, see, the dates matter. So if you go to trouble looking it up, you'll see that the villain... But one, one child died young. So um, if the girl was born, I think, in 1720, so his daughter was born when he was uh, 17, when he's 21 years old, 2021, 20, okay? And then he had a second girl at the age of, uh, let's say, 28, which is interesting, that gap. Maybe that's when he went off wandering and so forth. Uh, so has two girls. Then two years later, when he's 30, he has the third daughter, Pessy. So that's three girls. Then at the age of 32, he had a fourth girl. So he has four girls, no sons. And then, like six or seven years later, when he was 39, he had a boy. And then when he was 44, he had a boy. And then when he's 45, or maybe 46, he had our hero, a boy. And then when he's 48, he had a girl. That was the last child. That's just interesting, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so he had seven surviving children, which is why you find a fair number of people who say they come back from the village alone. It's, it, it's, it's quite true. Um, and uh, so the boys were born... I, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. So the boys were born in the second half of his life from 39, and he died like 79, 77, something like that, you know, and our hero, Rabbi Avram Ben-Agra, uh, so he was born in 1765, that would mean the father was 45 or 46 years old when he was born, just just think about that, okay, the father was 45 or 46 when he was born, and that means he was about 30 or so, approximately, or 31, 32, when his father died, Let's keep that in mind. Uh, since a Ben Zakunim, if I can use that expression, not that having a child at forty-five is, you know, uh, it's not like Abraham or something like that, but it's just interesting. Okay, now the Grob and others had sons whom he could learn with or not learn with, whatever he wanted. Uh, in his forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies, that's how it goes. Now our hero Avram Ben Grob, um, you know, obviously grew up learning with the father and so forth. I mean, good grief. I don't know, maybe learn some other place, but basically with the father. He's a shtickle ben zakunim. I mean, he, it, it, according to what I just told you, he was, uh, let's see now, the youngest son. See, he's like the Joseph. He was the, the father's youngest son, ben zakunim. He had a younger sister, but as far as boys are concerned, it's that. Um, the Vilnagon was, as I say before, a remote figure, but not really, no, not to his family. And there are many mices and so forth. I hesitate to talk about the Vilnagon because there are so many Boba mices out there. Uh, it's very hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. This is the problem ever since, you know, with Hasidim, it's the same thing. The only thing is the Misnagim say, oh, the Hasidim have Baba Mises. Well, the Misnagim have plenty of Baba Mises, plus a lot of politics. They cover up things, they add things. It's it's how it goes. And the Vilna is a very complex character. Uh, like the Rambam, it's sort of in the sense that the left-wingers want to portray him in one way, the right-wingers want to portray him in another way. Everybody's bringing their own 
cheshments to the to portrayal of the of the figure. Uh, but if we're talking now about his son, so this is somebody who, by the way, died young. He was like forty or forty-five, something less than that when he died. So he didn't have a long life, the son. But it's a very interesting one. So here's somebody growing up in the he was born in seventeen sixty-five or so. So he's growing up in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, which is the time of the fights with the Hasidim. Okay? But that's not all it is. It's also the time when the Vilna was already famous, world famous. Remember, he almost uh, made Aliyah by himself, leaving the kids behind in 1777, I think it was. But it didn't happen. Uh, if you read the letter of the Gros to his wife, you know, when he when he's leaving, you know, the Gersa Gros. He said, please get along with my mother, with your mother-in-law. So in other words, he had a normal family. Okay, he said, please, please don't make fights with my mother. So the Vilna and an aged mother lived with him. And uh, things like that. Now, this Avram obviously grew up to be a big Talmud Chacham. Uh, you know, he wasn't a rebel or anything like that, so he grew up to be a big Talmud Chacham. Uh, but what's interesting, and, and when I say big Talmud Chacham, if you're the son of the girl, you're interested in Nigla and Nister. Correct? And later on, I think, I believe he, he edited or published things from the Grohl on the Zohar, Tikkuni, Zohar, things like that. So notice he was holding in that kind of stuff. The Vilna as you may or may not know, has a very distinct take in Kabbalah. And this is his son, for crying out loud. Also in Nikola. And so, although it wasn't published, I think in Yeshurun, not too long ago, they published some Nikola type stuff. In other words, he had stuff to say on Shas, on Shulchan Aruch, that kind of, that kind of business. He also posthumously edited some of the Gros stuff. So we're talking about a guy who's a majorly Talmud Chacham. He married a rich girl. Why wouldn't he? If your father's the Vilna Gon, you know, so you can imagine he makes a shidduch like that. And so I can only imagine that he had, so to speak, a certain luxury in life, leisure, to devote himself to um, learned concerns, uh, as far as that's concerned. So, you know, keep that in mind. And he lived in Vilna. Now, Ordinarily, you say, yes, or say he's a Vilna Gon's son. You know, it's an old line. You'll never be anybody if your father or brother is famous. The brother of Maral is always going to be just a brother of Maral, even though he's a Gavarab in his own right. Uh, and so forth, you know. So the son of the Gros is always going to be the son of the Gros and the father's shadow, because who can be like the who can be like the Gros, you know. Nevertheless, it's not true what I'm saying. And now I'm going to tell you where I'm going. The Vilna Gon had many sides. And like I said before, the left-wingers want to portray him one way, the right-wingers another way, and so on and so forth. Uh, one way is to say, the Vilna Gon learned 23 out of 24 hours, and he learned Nigla Nister. Therefore, he is the uh, patron saint of the yeshiva movement, which he is. The Veloshan yeshiva, which is the mother of all the literature yeshivas, you know, was modeled of Chaim Veloshan, the Grah. Everybody strives, according to their ability, to imitate the Grah, realizing, like any ideal, nobody can make it to learn 22, 23 hours a day. But notice, you give it your best shot. Okay? All, and all of which is totally true. If you want to take it a step further, you go not only Nigla, but also Nister, even though the Yeshivas don't do Nister, but nevertheless. And, and matter of fact, one of the reasons why the Ramchal is popular in the Yeshiva world is precisely because the Vilna Gon praised him and said he knows what he's talking about. So the average Litvish guy who wants to learn Kabbalah to whatever degree takes the attitude like this. If the Gras said he knows what he's talking about, then that, that's enough for me. You see? Even though there are other Mikabalim who'll say the Ramchal got this wrong, that wrong, because there are many different sheets out there and Kabbalistic stuff. 
uh, the Lubavitch, for example, you know, have their own way. And I, I and, and all this is true, and I'm not disrespecting anybody. Now, uh, the Groh's son, the one we're talking about, Avram, uh, he did all that. However, it's also true that the Vilna Gaon was an important figure in a certain type of relationship to Limud Echol, to secular studies. And here you come to something very interesting, because today, and mainly Hasidish, there's like an Isser on Limud Echol. And if people do learn, it's like a super Bidievan and whatever. Parnosa, you know, this, that, and the other. In fact, you might say that's the big split between the modern Orthodox and non Orthodox to use a general expression, Lakewood versus YU, you know, to use an expression like that. Uh, right? When Torah moderates, they need when Torah believe motto. The only thing is, I had to become an MD because I have to make a pronounce. Oh, that's a different story. Okay, fine. You know that. But the Gras himself and many other, let me put it this way, in the in the history of Kal Yisrael, there never was, or very rarely was, a principled opposition to Limudichol per se. That, it's, that in and of itself is usher. It may be because of certain situations, like at the time of the Rajvah and the Maimonidean controversies, and people going off the derech and this, and that, and the other, that you do find. However, to say that Limuri Chol, by which I mean science, math, philosophy, you name it, is usher in and of itself, there are some statements like that, and there are some Yudom like that, but generally speaking, it was more of a question of, eh, why you bother with this stuff? Or it's a bidyevit or something like that. In other words, it's not usher in principle. Uh, I would say the Hasidim would have once introduced the idea it's usher in principle, as far as I know. Now, the Gras is famous um, and controversial, I might say, for giving a haskama, and people fight over whether it's ac- whether it's real or not, forged uh, to some science books, math books, things like this. Um, he had Risrol of Shklov was a was a student of, uh, no, the brother uh, of Yisrael of Shklov, uh, the other one, and Hill Rivlin, who wrote uh, uh, books on Euclid. I think he, everybody in Yeshiva knows they've only gone out a geometry book, things like that. Now, if you're real from, you'll say he wrote in the bathroom, which is kind of weird, but whatever. Uh, so he had this, So I, I would put it, me, myself, and I, I would put in the following terms. This is how I understand it, which is all I can ever share. I think the, these Gedolim, the Litvish I'm talking about, divided Limuri Chol into two areas. Those things that clash with Judaism and those that do not. So nobody had problems. With, in fact, they had a positive attitude towards mathematics. You know, algebra, geometry, and so forth. After all, what's, what's, how does that clash with anything? Right? That's okay. Uh, what about science? Well, are you talking about hard science? Or are you talking about the social sciences? I'll tell you what I mean. If you're talking about uh, physics, astronomy, so forth and so on, uh, okay. If you're talking about metaphysics, philosophy, mala mala malafni mala achar, that they that's where they had problems, including the Groh himself. So it's not surprising that he would encourage people to write stuff on uh, on on geometry, on Euclid, and things of that nature. On the other hand, you can also understand that uh, he cussed out the at least he's in the in the uh, Biuria Groh, he's uh, is supposed to have cussed out if it's true the Rambam for Kanto uh, Rambam Philosophia Harura uh, when he de- deals with metaphysics. Okay, 
Fine. So far, so good. So the question, now we're talking about the, the time in which they lived, the late 1700s. Because I told you, our hero was born in 1765, which means he grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Okay? And he died in his early 40s. So, you, well, you know, it wasn't that long of a life. So what was going on over there? First of all, they're fighting the Hasidim during that time. Big time. That's number one. Number two, Poland was being taken over by Russia. That's the outside story. Catherine the Great was more successful than Putin. Suffice it to say that. Now, uh, the Empress of Russia. Uh, but in the world of knowledge, the 1700s saw an explosion of secular knowledge. Uh, people don't realize that. Now, it's nothing compared to what came in the 1800s and 1900s and all that. That is true. But compared to what had been before, what the, generally people call the age of the Enlightenment, which has like a dirty word in, in Jewish history because they think of a Haskell and they think of it in a certain way, uh, the, enlight, the, the, the Enlightenment in the sense of scientific discoveries really f- opened a floodgate of new info. And I'm talking about real information, such as people had no idea that it existed before. So whether it's in uh, the mathematics and the chemistry and the various science and so on and so forth. One of the areas of tremendous new discoveries, uh, I mean, really new information out there was that in the 1700s, the Europeans discovered the world, the whole globe. Um, that's when uh, people went and discovered new areas. And more importantly, even when they had discovered a little bit, that's when scientists and people like that went there and started writing up reports and and descriptions of what they had found. And people said, oh, there's a whole continent of Africa like this. There's a whole place of South America like that. And there's Peru. And there's this and that and the other. Australia. I mean, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. In other words, there were a whole halakim of the Messias that people had simply not known about in Europe, certainly Ashkenazi Jews. And now we're coming out into uh, into European knowledge. So if you were a guy living, for example, in in, in in Central Western Europe, you know, England, France, Germany, such places, Holland or wherever. Uh, new books are coming out all the time. And I'm not talking about books of of uh, religious uh, philosophy. I'm talking about the fact they discovered a new area and a new type of plant and new minerals and boats are going there and there's whole different types of human beings. We never knew that there were people three feet tall with uh, two ears, uh, you know, five years and stuff like that. I mean, you know, in the, the South Sea Islands, you know, mutiny in the bounty, all that kind of things was all being discovered during the lifetime of the growth. Now, you can say like this, who cares? I get that. Uh, and I do understand that that mentality. But you can also understand, wow, this is uh, amazing. And I don't know why, but the Vilnagon son, who has you know spent most of his time learning and published on shots and postgame and all the rest of it, actually he didn't publish, he wrote it up, uh, will devote himself when his father dies, so he was learning with the Gra and all that, you know, which is understandable. And imagine, by the way, he was a Gabayan, the Vilnagon's base Medrash, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, when the Vilnagon dies, so part of the time he spends editing and publishing the Kisve Hagra, as we would call it today, and part of the time he throws himself, and this is to me the interesting and remarkable part, into studying the new sciences and writing them in Hebrew to spread them to a wide Hebrew readership. So that means he's a Moscow. Not in the sense he usually used the word Moscow. No, it's not mean anything unfirm in this at all. But Moscow, let's say, for example, in the sense that 
you want to spread uh, information out there about the Matthias of the world, of the of the universe, uh, not in an unfrom way at all, zero, because he's a from guy. He's a son of the ground, he's not a rebel. But you want to enlighten, in the best sense of the word, uh, the public. And so, here's the funny part. Uh, he sees very modern in this kind of way, which is not what you would expect. Uh, so he wrote a book, Vulus Aris, which means he took the number one geography book of the 18th century by this famous French guy that you never heard of, the Comte de Buffon, who, whose book was maybe Histoire Naturelle, he wrote a natural history. Natural history means geography in the wide sense of the flora, the fauna, the different types of people who live in different places, the description of all kind of uh, new uh, botany, zoology, uh, biology, and all this kind of stuff, you know. You see things very different than what you used to seeing if you live in Vilna, you know, or, or in Western Europe. There are people that have different skin color, have different face lookings, they have different styles of everything. And, you know, you, you can take the attitude of Morab Masech Hashem. Buffon was not like that. He was talking atheist and so forth, you know. Although he had to watch his P's and Q's because he lived in France, which was a Catholic kingdom at the time. He died just before the French Revolution. So Buffon lived under the Catholic system. So he would always say something, Trafe, and then say, I didn't mean it. You know, that's a, that's his style. But I'm not going into Buffon. All I'm saying is, this is a very popular Gaisha book. I repeat, a Gaisha book, which was translated into other languages. And also, especially, they make kitsers of it. Because his was like 20 volumes or something like that. And it was the latest science of his time. Now, if I'm living in Paris or London or a place like that, or, or Berlin, and I want to know, is a country called China? Is a country called Korea? Is a sea, South Sea island called Palu? Peleliu? I mean, I'm serious about this. The Philippines, you know, what are they at that time? What a different type of Odazars they believe in? What a different religion type they believe in? What is their anthropology? You know, it, uh, you know, they eat people, they don't eat people, they, they're nice, they're not nice. They're tall, they're short, you know. They have a, 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 they're they're handsome, they're ugly. All this kind of stuff went into his uh, business, and he has a million theories at that time. Remember, it's the 18th century, so it's the beginning of trying to figure this out scientifically. So you know, is the for example the old question, is the different uh, uh, what he called, is the different what you and I today would call racial differences. He that time he didn't have that. That's a, that's a later category. Is it because they're they're exposed to the sun, or, or is it because um, or they're exposed to the winter, you know the Eskimos, or is it because of what they eat, um, you know all kind of things like that, right? Did the human race begin with just an Adam and Eve type situation, or were there already several different types of Anakabas at the same time, or did it happen later? It's it's uh, you know all the kind of questions that frankly people and and teenagers ask whenever they read Brachis No Chlechel Chavayera. And the Rebbeim don't know exactly what to say. So all the questions were, were, were hotly debated in the 18th century. Uh, so it was just an interesting time. So our hero, who's a rabbi in Vilna in his 30s, who has the best yichas in the world, his father's the Grob, who's a very from guy, the Gabbai of Vilna Gons Klois, who's into Nigla and Nister, knows he knows Zohar and things like this. He does. He does. You know, the Vilna Gons had a very distinct take on the Kisri but I'm not going to go into that now. Uh... But he's also interested, like I say, in math and science and all this kind of stuff. And in this case, he wants to share, because if you're translating into Hebrew, very interesting Hebrew too, what you're doing is writing for a Jewish audience. See, so he's a Moscow, the way the Moscow in Spain were in the Middle Ages, 
which is you're taking the Geisha knowledge, the, hopefully the good part, not the bad, and you're making available to large numbers, because if you write in Hebrew, everybody who's a Talmud Chacham, a rabbi in some little place you never heard of, whatever, will now discover what's going on in the whole world, uh, about the discovery of America, and more important, that day books they already had, but, um, you know, what's the, uh, as they say, the geography, in the large sense, like if you go to college and take a degree in geography, you know, what, what's what's in every planet and climb and, and all this sort of thing, and why would he do that, right? And especially from Buffon, who was really like a very skeptical, I mean, you know, he kind of was like atheist. Uh, Elamai, you see that he had this attitude that, you know, Kabbalah Amra, if this is science, uh, then we, the Jewish people, should know it uh, because it's the MS. That itself is already interesting. You tell me science is the MS. Uh, because I say it's interesting because that's the science of that time. It will later get suppressed with the other science. A writing for a Hebrew audience, and I want to tell you something. You're a little kid or a teenager living in a some shtetl, you know, in a place over there where there's nothing going on, just mud all year long, you know, and nothing ever happens. There are no books. And now a guy writes a book, and you have a window in the entire world. It's the closest they could get at that time to sitting in front of a computer having the internet. With the internet, if I want to know about the, anything about Australia, bing, I can do it. If I want to know about the climate changes in uh, northeastern India, I can do it, if that's what interests me. How many different races are there, or tribes in Afghanistan? I can find that in a second. Uh, he, at that time, most Jews couldn't read anything outside of Hebrew. The Moskilic enterprise was, number one, they should learn languages outside of Hebrew. Number two, expand the amount of knowledge that's available to the public in Hebrew. And this is being done by the son of the Vilna Gong. The truth of the matter is, he didn't translate, copy it straight from Buffon, but from a, a kitzer of Buffon. So who cares? Uh, that's just weird. Okay? Uh, unless you say that he sincerely held like the Graw, in which case, it's good that, that, that Jews should not be dumb. They should know uh, secular information as long as it doesn't clash with the Torah. And I can tell you right now, there's articles and books. I there was a lady wrote about it years ago. Uh, in the academic books, articles, I mean, and you'll see every time there's something that's, uh, how should I put it, a little controversial, he'll give a from spin to it. You understand those? If Buffon says something that would be challenging to a Chazal or to a Chumash, he won't write it. He'll, he'll give it a different spin, right? Because he was a from guy. So you, when you're reading the book, won't find anything that's connected anything in the Torah. So then what's wrong with that? If it's not connected anything in the Torah, and it expands your knowledge of the world. So you can say like this, what the heck do I care what's going on in Asia? Or else you can say, I don't want to be a, a board derisa and, you know, Nesno no Gemara, not know anything at all about the the planet on which I live. You know, I, I, I want to be an educated person to some degree. I'm not going to college necessarily, but I'm going to educate some degree. Here you can have it in Hebrew. Now, he didn't sign his name to it, which is very interesting. At least as I remember, that was the story. He didn't sign his name to it. And um, and that meant, you see, I wish I could I put a positive spin on this. Not signing your name with it means he recognized he's doing something controversial. Maybe he was afraid, being the villain of going son, the father was dead, that this doesn't look right. I, you know, I, why did he do it if he thought it didn't look right? I don't know. All I know is, within a short time, a galaxy honor came along and plagiarized the whole thing and published it under his own name. Because <laughs> after all, you never said who the author is. 
So that means he never took out a copyright or even the rabbinical equivalent of a copyright, which you get as comments and, and the rabbis would say, don't steal this uh, book. So I think within two, three years, the Galatianer went and, uh, and copied it and published the whole thing under his own name. This is the world, my friends. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame. Uh, what was the guy's name? Naftali Hertz of Brody. So this book was published in 1801, and three years later in Zolkiev, it was <laughs> it was published um, in 1804. And uh, what do you call it? Whenever the son, once in a while in this book, he said, my father said, this is the Vilnagon, so he omitted it. So this is part of the Hasidic, anti-Hasidic wars, you know what I mean? Because uh, there was a lot of lying and, and prevaricating on both sides, of, and Malshinus, and all kinds of stuff of this nature. Now, here's the funny part. In modern Israel, the Haredim, they're kind of like embarrassed about this. So if you look at the official biography of Vilnagon from uh, Eliach, he said, no, he didn't really write it. Amaskal said he wrote it, um, but it's not true, and so on and so forth. But they found, you know, the, the, the academics found proof that it is true. So this is part of the attempts we have nowadays in the Haredi historiography to... But, but you know, do plastic surgery on the past, uh, which is just a, a very interesting, because the Gro and the others, in one respect or another, had a positive view on Limudichol in the sense of science. I'll say it again: they were thinking in ter- they had it in mind that um, this is my understanding. They had in mind that things like mathematics and the hard sciences you can't fool around with. Philosophy, you can shoot the ball. You know, metaphysics, you can do this way, that way. And those things can be a challenge to religion. But plain science, what can be wrong with that? Now, they didn't realize later on will come Charles Darwin, and that would be its own kind of challenge. But I'm talking about the 18th century. Uh, but nowadays, they don't, want, they don't want to say that. I would go even farther. The idea of publishing Hebrew books that spread secular knowledge, but in a kosher way, to use a modern terminology, an art scroll science book. So what's wrong with an art scroll? I believe the art scroll maybe did that for Tarmasura. Isn't that right? Or something like that? I seem to remember that they published uh, like an English lit book for use in high schools and things like that. So you won't have the trape stuff. But on the other hand, you'll have, I don't know, you know, Shakespeare, whatever it is. Uh, you know what I'm saying? To use in the high schools, uh, I think the girls' high schools, if I remember. Uh, some of you will remember. And uh, like I don't teach high school anymore. Maybe those are the books that they use. Uh, because that's getting problematical now as, as the culture in America changes. But uh, it's, it's you know, you, you have this thing ha- happening. Uh, you have this thing happening that, uh, like in America, you need to, 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 to fulfill high school requirements, at least outside of those schools in New York that don't. And uh, on the other hand, you have to have a text that will get approved by the, the uh, you know, education authorities, part of education. So the art scroll will do it for you, or the Feldheim. That's more or less what these guys were talking about. The only thing is they were not pressed to do it because of some Department of Education. They felt lishma that you should do this, which is just an interesting side. Uh, there was, in other words, a rationalistic streak. It's not the dominant streak, but it's not absent either. From the literature gadolm of that time, it's very interesting, and that's why it's kind of surprising that some of the big maskilic works written by maskilim Hutaka turned out later on be not from had big haskamas. I mean, uh, Isaac Bear Levinson when he wrote the Tudis Yisrael, I remember he had a haskamas 
from uh, Rabava Paspal, or it was the Rabbi in Vilna, imagine, names like that. Um, the guy who cooperated with Moses Mendelssohn, Shlomo Dubno, uh, who was a from guy, but he was a very close friend of Moses Mendelssohn until they had arguments. And then Shlomo Dubno went to Vilna, if I remember correctly, after he busted up with Mendelssohn, and he was going to publish, understand this well, he wrote a lot of the Mendelssohn Chumash. Not all of it, a lot of it. And it's written in a rationalistic kind of vein. It's from, but it emphasized the rationalistic interpretation of the Chumash, which is one Mahalach. Nothing wrong with that. Although somebody sent me an email the other day, I don't know why they sent it to me, attacking some new safer, Pshuto shall crawl, something like that, for doing the same thing. Uh, but now everything's politicized. Anyway, so this Shlomo Dubna says, when he was in Vilna, he said, you know, I have a project now. I want to publish the Mendelssohn Chumash, which I wrote, or the parts he wrote, without the German stuff. So, in other words, omitting the most controversial part of the Mendelssohn beer Chumash. Uh, so it'll just be, you know, Chumash, Rashi, Unculus, that's for sure. And then my Pirish, which is a rationalistic one, you know, the Raul Bog style, the Barbanel style, you know, that kind of thing, Bukhar Shor. And, um, and he got us comments from Chaim Voloshin or others. You, you understand? I'm talking about the 1780s. Uh, from Chaim Voloshin, I forget who else. Now, again, in Israel, the Haredi biographers, the really going to say it's not true, it's a lie, it's a forgery. And then this Lubavitcher guy said, no, it's not. Uh, who was his name? Munshine, who was the big Lubavitcher historiographer, who is a big historian. I think he passed away not long ago. And he said, yo, you really did, Chaim Voloshin really did say, and the other guys said, no, he didn't. And they go back and forth over here. And he said, you see what you're doing? Uh, uh, you're a Dora Shofi to Shoftov. You're trying to, you know, make the Gedolim in the free of generations fit your shoes. You're trying to, you know, to reverse it, which is what we call today, you know, um, art scrolling it, so to speak, as, as a general term. I don't mean art scroll specifically. So say what you want. Here's the son of Vilnagon, who's publishing a geography book um, from a French guy, uh, which was the the most advanced science that they knew at that particular time, in Hebrew, to spread a certain type of Haskalah. Not the, I'm going to repeat again, it's not the Traif type, there's nothing in there that's connected, but you're broadening the horizons of people, and why he picked geography and zoology and botany and anthropology, that's what we would call today, uh, and write about the South Sea Islands, Vesachnish. But there you have it. Now I'm not finished. In addition to that, he also, I want to repeat, and he also published Vilna Gon stuff. And as I said, I remember the Yishorin, you know, he had Chedushim and Shas, all the rest of it, but he didn't publish those. Uh, I'm not finished. He also was interested, and here again you see the Vilna Gon, in, in another type of Haskola. And again, I'm using the word Haskell in a very technical sense, not in a non-from sense, because he's a very from guy. And that is, has to do with Medrash. And that's also a very fascinating thing. I did talk to W.C. Hoffman in some detail a couple months ago. He lived later on in the 1800s. One of the aspects of the second wave of the Haskell, because the Haskell came in three waves, uh, the Haskell of Berlin, the Haskell of Galicia, and then the Haskell of Russia. So the reason it came in three waves is it died out each time. And the reason it died out has to do, I spoke about this already, has to do with the fact 
that a Moscow, by definition, is an autodidact that's self-taught. And um, they were type of people who felt that they had been d denied a good education by their parents in the society in which they had lived. Um, so notice that instead of experiencing yeshiva's upbringing as, as warm and cozy, they felt it as, as narrow and stifling. That's a subjective uh, matter. Uh, parents wrestle with this all the time, as we know. And um, how should I put it? So, um, yeah, I had to interrupt it. Um, so they felt that, that uh, they had been denied a secular education, which was true. And they never able to acquire a formal education like you, the listeners, had. You went to something called elementary school, high school, and so forth and so on. And however good a job they did, but at least it conformed to what the state calls um, basic educational requirements. And these muskilm always made sure that their children had a good secular education. But that means that they had a poor a Jewish education. And uh, therefore, they went off the derrick. Let's leave it that way. They weren't interested. By the second or third generation of muskilm, they weren't interested in what their grandparents were interested in. You know, well, I should be interested in a Hebrew translator of Shakespeare, which is what the Muskelum would do. Well, I can read Shakespeare straight, you know, and get better uh, scholarship in English, and so forth and so on. Now, that the first wave was with the Berlin Haskala, but it died out around the early 1800s. The second wave was called the Haskala of Galicia, but it wasn't only in Galicia, it started there, and that was very much focused on Jewish history. Um, and that's the rise of modern Jewish history. So here we have a broad phenomenon when in a number of places, a very small number of intellectuals started to be get up involved in what they call historicism, which started in the University of Berlin in 1810. I won't go into that. And they want to know what, what Judaism had really been like in the past. Not Bubba Mises and not stuff like that, stuff and fluff. What it had really been, that's what their goal was. And they turned to the Jewish literature. That's all you have to work with, especially if you're in Moscow. You can't read Geisha documents and go and travel to research centers and royal libraries and Vatican and things like that. So you just have Sfarm that you can get your hands on. You can learn a lot from the Sfarm. So um, that's the old Moskalic style of the second wave of the Haskalah. And that started what you and I today would call the modern study of Jewish history. Which is why the from world has always been suspicious of this, because the main practitioners were not really from. Um, at the most, they're borderline. Uh, but once you get down to that, so how do you exactly approach this? Because how do I sit down and write a history of the Jewish people, or history of rabbinical literature, or history of response literature, or history of uh, Jewish courts, or history of uh, Jewish politics? I mean, how do you do that, right? So, well, look it up in the books. I mean, you know, but what's, you have to have a plan of organization in your mind. Otherwise, it'll come out hot plop. It won't, it won't make any sense. So here's where I'm going with this. One of the areas, one of the things they did in the 19th century was to say, listen, we Jews don't have, again, I say in the 19th century, don't have much of a political history. We never had a country ever since Corbin Bayesheni. We haven't had a church since, you know, the Sanhedrin went out of business. So we've been scattered all over the place. Now, it is possible in the 21st century to say there's a Jewish history of the individual communities, but that's not how they thought in the 19th century. And they said, and here's where Tunes, Gratz, and all the other famous guys came into me. He said, well, we have a literature. You can tell the Jewish history by the history of its literature, Literaturgeschichte, as they call it in German, uh, which is an interesting thing. It's actually a very yeshibisha type of approach. And 
the question then becomes, okay, how do you organize a study or history of Jewish literature? In the very beginning, you got to assemble your information, right? Suppose, for example, I was saying, I want to write a history, I'm just making this up, I'm going to write a history of um, the Jewish law codes. Well, right off the bat, I can think of the Rambam and Tur and Shulchan Aruch, but I mean, that's not enough. you got to start thinking and working down and, and doing your work to find out who wrote a halacha book before the Rambam. Let's say, for example, the, the, the Rif, and who wrote before him, and how do you compare and contrast them, and so on and so forth. Now, when you get to the area of Chazal, it's more amorphous and it's larger. You know, you have all those mesechtes and shas and things like that. Uh, but at least you have a final work called the Talmud Babli, which in the 19th century, that's all they knew existed. The Babli Yushalmin are the classic books. So all a guy could do was learn up shas from the history point of view. Now, as every time Rabbi Yochanan is mentioned, make an underline and then see if you can line up all the things Rabbi Yochanan said and come up with some vort, you know what I mean, some his, history vort. I mean, it's possible to do that. Or if you want, you do like Sun Tzu with Rashi, every time Rashi mentions jewelry or something like that, you know, that's a certain mahalach. We call it antiquarianism. You're looking for small details. Now I'm going to bring up a subject that's super amorphous and can drive you nuts, and that's Medrash. There's a Velta Medrashim out there. Now you and I know, and I think people always knew, some of them are bogus and some of them are not. So how do I know? How do I know? So if I say, oh, this story with Avram and in, in, in this week's parsha, you know, with uh, Yaakov and Esav, I saw this shot about Esav in the Medrash uh, hula hoop. You know, I don't know. Like, what is that? Oh, you, you, you're arguing with the Chazal? I never heard of Medrash hula hoop, or whatever you want to call it. You see, I mean, I don't know what's out there. Everybody knows a few. Everybody knows the Medrash Rabbah, and the Medrash Tanchumah, and a couple of others, you know, Pirker Belezer, you know, a couple more. And, but that's it. You know, Psikta and so forth. Are they accurate? Are they not accurate? What I mean to say is, like, is there any of them forgeries? Or any of them come late? Which one was written when? When were they written? Who wrote them? When did they write them? These are the fundamental, basic historical questions that um, stand out there for anybody of intelligent discussion of the subject from a, a, a das, a scholarly point of view. They don't have to be unfrom, but it might be, you know. Um, but you got to start with something. Otherwise, you're a Cretan, you're a prisoner, whatever somebody tells you a medrash said. You get it? If somebody says, oh, it's a medrash said this and this. The Avram uh, got wings and flew down and bombed uh, China, you know. It's a medrash. It's a chazal. So how do I know if it's real or not real? And, and how do I know what century it's written in? Suppose I told you, which I could, some of these midrashim are not what you think. You think they're written in time of Chazal. Actually, they're published, I don't know, time of Sajigana, or, or Rashi even. You know, I think the Yalka Shemoni is time of Rashi. It's a collection. They're later than many people think. So, how do you work this through? Our hero, I don't know why, was into this. Maybe his father was. Because the Vilna Gun was into getting the right gearses down. One of the things he did was go through all the gearsa problems. Which means you're already thinking in a quasi-muscular way in the sense of who the, the text that I'm having in front of me, is it accurate or not? It's not usually the way <coughs> <coughs> the traditional Yeshiva world did something. They have a Sefer, they read the Sefer, they go through the Sefer, they're Mayan in the Sefer. The Vilna Gaon is asking the question, how do I know the Sefer's got it right? What if I see the Sefer as a different Gerson than the Tama Bavli? So, you know, from time to time we've had Gedolim like that, 
and from time other times we we have done we're not interested in that. So the Vilna Gaon was famous for being one of those who were interested in that. So was the Marshal, for example, and others. And his son, our hero, uh, I know why, got really into uh, Midrashim, and in a broad scientific kind of way, and he published one of the first works of what I would call the second wave of the Haskalah, or if you prefer, the Wissenschaft des Judentums, because there are different manifestations of this historical interest that popped up in Europe in the early 1800s. Now, our hero died very early in the 1800s. So he actually preceded the Maskilim and the Wissenschaft guys, which is very interesting, because they didn't know what to do with him. They say, here's like the son of Vilnagona, obviously a very firm guy, and he's giving a modern scientific kind of approach to it. And he published a number of works, um, which are of use even today, in which he said, what's out there in terms of Midrashim, and how accurate are they or not accurate, and what the heck are they? So if I tell you, I saw something in Pirkei Echalos, I saw something in Perges Medrash Vayichulu, or Merish Vayiso, or Medrash this, or that and the other, or Mechilta uh, and a half, you know, is this real, is it not real, what what are they? Remember, I'm sitting in Vilna, or Berlin, or Warsaw, or Galicia, or wherever, and I'm looking at, 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 at maybe I got a hold of, of, of a certain medish. I don't know what it is. I can read what the contents are, but what is it? Medish of Hanukkah, what is it? And so um, he put out, first the medish I've got a bracious, but then uh, so he published that, but then he did his uh, very famous um, what do you call it? Uh, Ralph Paulim, which Believe it or not, is in the kudos now. That's where I got my copy. A couple of years ago it came out. Right? I'm just opening at um, random here. You see Medish Plia. Not a Medish Plia. A Medish called Plia. What is that? Maska Brashid Bro Kim Hadik Siv Achas Diba Shem Star Shamati, Vikim Bikola Parsha Maska Pasig, or Plias Niskovis Mudurabo, Divus Venitia, Yoshan. So he just gave you like a, a, a scientific or bibliographic entry of you know, on what it is. So I look at Medish Plea, I know it was published in Venice well, back in that year, and I see, which will be 15, uh, what was it be? Uh, 1600, I guess, Yashan. And, um, and it's on Bracious, and it deals with those kind of things. Um, here's next, after it comes something called Psikta Ravkana, which in those days, they didn't necessarily know what it is. And he says, Ma'amorim niflam v'narayim, whom yusad al-sefer haftoras arba parshas. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. So now I know what, if you see something in Psikta Rav Kana. Then comes Psikta Rav Bossi. Huva Batosa Mordechai. See, at that time it wasn't published. I think he himself was the one who published, if I remember correctly, he himself published the Psikta Rav Bossi or Psikta, then there's something called Psikta Zutrosi. Now you hear these names when somebody gives a speech. And nowadays we're in a different world. And you can look this up, uh, you know, online or someplace like that. But this didn't exist in the seventeen late seventeen early 1800s. What's the Psiktid Zutrosi? Midrashim Amamarim Tmuim Misifra Visifri Amichilta. Oh, okay. Okay. You see? And Vichasam Bishmo Kamapamim Tovi Ben Eliezer. A Rashim Sifri Davin Oppenheim, maybe Bira Al Tavra Chamash Migil Al Derek Pardis, um, the Rashi Tavis, Hafli Vafella, or a Parshis Vaigash, Chasan Asatmo, Tovi Ben Eliezer, Pubal Psikta, or Fianis Daiti. So that was a quote itself from uh, from David Oppenheim. Now David Oppenheim was the rabbi in Prague 
who was a zillionaire, and he bought the best library that anybody ever had. And he got a hold of all these different unusual uh, manuscripts, and he was a bibliophile par excellence, and he reclassified and wrote these things up, and they're in, in, in the library in England. They bought it up. So he's telling you that the Psikta Zitrasi is identical with what today we call Medush Lekachtov. You see? Now, a guy, so if you have any, and he goes over several pages talking about these sorts of things. And what is this? It's not yeshivish, you see? On the other hand, there's nothing trafing in it. As a matter of fact, he's very from, and a lot of these things he takes literal and so on and so forth. I mean, you'll just take my word for it or not. Look it up yourself. Uh, it, it goes without saying he's very from. But the approach of assembling all out there, he's like 150 different Midrashic texts. Uh, so it's a lot more than just the Medeshav, Medeshankumah, and, and the, uh, what do you call it, the Pirka Blazer. Uh, it's a lot more out there, but he tells you what they are at least. And he started the ball rolling. Everybody, the non-former motive to this, he started the ball rolling in terms of the scientific study of the Medrash. Which means, what's, let's say, for example, yeah, I don't know, Psikta Rabasi. So, uh, what is it? Who wrote it? Where is it? You have an old copy from Venice that was published or whatever? Okay. Where did they get it from? And you start hunting all over Europe for a manuscript. And then you eventually publish, I forget who did this, in the uh, Buber, I think, or Shlomo Buber, in the uh, later 1800s, a guy will say, I'm publishing a scientific, or they call a critical edition, or whatever. What's trying a critical edition? My name is so-and-so. I live in this and this place. I was interested in publishing this. I want to know what's out there. I did the best search I can go. I found out that in the whole world, as far as I'm aware, see, he's writing it in a scientific way. You know, transparently, I heard there's a there's a manuscript of it in Vienna, in the library. Manuscript that's the oldest copy. There's another one in London, and let's see another one in the Vatican. These three would constitute, to the best of my knowledge, all that we know about the original writings of Sikta Rabasi. Let's say, for example, and I'm putting them all out in an edition. At the top will be I don't know. Let's say, for example, the Vatican one, and underneath will be the Khalifa Girsas that you find in the other places. Um, how can we, based on uh, the way it's written and uh, how old the manuscript was and this and that and the other, I would offer my guess, best guess that it was uh, originated, was originally written by Plony and Plony, or we don't know who it was, it was written in this way, and uh, there may be other copies that are lost. And, you know, by the way, another guy can say it five years later, I found another copy you weren't aware of. It's science, so that's okay. You can't get angry about that. And uh, our hero, the villain, the gone son of all people, it's the guy who started the whole bouldering in the study of Medrash. I can tell you that as the 19th century progressed, early 20th century, this field was dominated by non-from, which, which always made it um, conservative, like non-orthodox, which made it, you know, that the from had a funny attitude towards it. Uh, uh, because they did have the best gearses. Uh, on the other hand, they didn't like the fact that it was written by a non-from person. And so she was already... Uh, What's the right word? You know, uh, they're always misubic towards it. I remember Louis Ginsburg, who is exactly one of these type of guys, said that when he was young in Tells, they had uh, the Psikta or whatever the particular was from Mayor Ishalom, who is exactly one of these type of guys who was a conservative, shall we say. But he published, he did very good work. 
they thought on the on gears of the midrashim and that sort of thing. And what they would do was they would get hit by the safer, put in yeshiva, but they would cut out the hakdama because the hakdama is where they had all the upper courses, and they would just have the safer itself, which would reflect you know this like um, what's the right word uh, conflicted attitude towards this. The whole business started with our hero, which you wouldn't think. So even today, so this is a from book. You can get this in his farm store, I guess. You know, I got it because, I mean, I had an older copy, but I gave it away once this one came out with the kudos. It always interests me, just as a matter of current sociology, who the heck would publish a safer from the Ville de Sun, which is a little bit outdated, on um, on what I just said, the safer Ralph Paulim, uh, who, Manukot, I mean, like, who's the audience for that, you know? Seems to me they're like these must be certain charedim. It's published by Mishor, whatever it is. It's like a May Sharm type operation. No, no, it's Rechov Rashi and Bnei Brak. I see. Uh, I, I'm not 100 sure who these guys are. Sounds like they're super charedim maskilim, you know, which you, which you can have sometimes in Israel. Because why are you publishing a saver like this with Nikudos? Um But whatever the case is, uh, you see. This was uh, the type of person our author was. Now, it's really interesting, because 30 years later, the regular non-from Wissenschaft uh, guys in Germany and in the Moscow in Poland started uh, publishing more expansive works along these lines. These are the people who laid the foundations for modern Jewish history. They're antiquarians. And they copied from his book, but they didn't call him, but they didn't give any attribution. I remember there's a whole thing back and forth, you know, uh, why didn't you give him the, the, the credit? And this is Suns' famous book on the Gottes Dinsh Fortrega, Sefer Hadrashas for Yisrael. I'm not going to bore you with all that inside Lashon Har. The, uh, but it's, it's, very, it's, it's very interesting that he would be um, interested in a guy like this. Now, um, he died young. And so you never know if he would live. I mean, he, I, he was at like 40 or 45. So you could easily live another 20, 30 years. And it could be that he might have, like many of the others, gone more to the right when they saw dangerous directions that Ascala was going in. He died very early in the process. Uh, he was buddies, you know, with Chaim Voloshin, with Zalma Voloshin, all the rest of it. Seo came from a very from a, a group, but uh, they liked the approach. Let me rephrase that. They liked aspects of the approach of going after you know the uh, the rabbinic literature in a um, systematic way, and nowadays this is already infiltrated from. I mean, it's a good thing, not a bad thing. You think of the Encyclopedia Talmudit or something like that, uh, you know, or the Masifdas even if you want to go that direction. But this is the early part of it, the prototypes, when uh, from the firmest circles uh, in Vilna anyway emerged these books. Which is not simply, you know, Gemara, 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 or Halacha, 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 even though they knew that too. Um, now, mind you, I want to say this before I go. Vilna was not Pripyat or something, you know. Vilna was not a hick town. Uh, Vilna, in the time of the Gra and his son, I won't say it's a major European city, but it wasn't a minor one. And they had a university there for hundreds of years. Uh, one second. Here in the Vilna University, was founded in the 1570s, long before the time of the Gras. So, 
Vilna was a place where you had libraries and books and secular knowledge and things of that nature. Very from Catholic, but still, um, wasn't like a little village in which, you know, there were five books. It was an intellectual center. That's the point I'm trying to get at. So if you're in a Vilna going, I'm not saying you went to visit the universities, although in the, uh, in the what do you call it, the bio of the Graw, you've heard this story. He was once in the university in, in, in Königsberg, and he answered, the story is, he answered, he ran for the, a mathematic question that stumped everybody else, meaning the Vilna Gaon, at least one time in his life, and probably more, did visit a university to see, I mean, he had his reasons, you know what I mean, he didn't go to his Thomas to study, although, I'm just trying to show you, our hero grew up in a funny environment. The Vilna Gaon's Rebbe, who is, what's his name? Not the Carbonate, the other one, Pene Moshe, on the side of the uh, Yerushalmi when he was young, did go to uh, the University of Königsberg to study botany uh, before he wrote the Yerushalmi thing on Zerom. Because uh, they found his card, you know, he was registered in university, which boggles the mind. And uh, I don't know, maybe, and, and, and our hero is writing a book in which, uh, uh, publishing a book, the Gavulis Arts, which has a lot about botany and, like I say, zoology and other ologies and anthropology and so on and so forth around the world. So it's a funny thing that was going on at that time. And whereas there have been other places in which there was no connection whatsoever between the local university on the one hand and the from community of the yeshiva on the other hand, it's also true in the history of Kali that you have the opposite sometimes, that there were some kind of connections. That doesn't mean that they just appropriated non-selectively, but uh, selective appropriation you did have. Vilna, just keep this in mind, was a famous place in Eastern Europe of uh, of secular intellectuality. That's not all it was at all. You know, it's a super Catholic place as well. But like I say before, um, in the Enlightenment movement in the in the 18th century, there were people in Vilna that could read and write, and uh, you know, in international affairs, and uh, you know, and they lived two, three, four blocks away from the Jewish community. So I'm not saying the Vilna gun was, you know, snuck into there or his son did on Wednesday nights, but it's it's in the street, you know, and the the, the uh, interest in, in greater knowledge of the world and the universe, not in a way that argues with the religion, would, uh, to me, you know, it wouldn't be surprising that you would have this, how it filters into our hero that he wants to take a sort of a scientific, historicist approach and apply it to rabbinic literature to get Clarkite on this very confusing business of the matter. I'm sure nobody listening to this has a real idea, you know, of how to classify the different midrashim and all the rest of it. I mean, maybe a few of you do, but you know, the vast majority of people out there, this is a subject never even occurs to them. You see, you figure whoever wrote the book, you know, they, they did the work. But here is a, somebody living at a time when nobody had done the work, um, and so the Ralph Paulin. And uh, he has a couple other books of those sorts. Uh, it's is really like kind of interesting. It's not what you would have thought you'd see from the son of the Vilna Gaon. That's all I'm saying. So uh, he died young. And he had children. I'm sure the people descended from him. Uh, but this is what makes him, in my mind, uh, an unusual and a very distinct, uh, um, almost a unique type, uh, which has kind of died out. Well, not really. They just don't talk about it. There's a few people I know in Yerushalayim like this. Uh, they're very from, and you look at them, you wouldn't know it, that, you know, that they're interested in all these sorts of things. Uh, but they are. The, the, the problem is that the left-wingers, 
have taken all this kind of knowledge and not pushed it. So it should be like, you know, I don't know, Avi Weiss or something like that. They they messed it up for these types because it makes it that all the uh, secular stuff seems to be trafe because it leads people to go off the derech. It's a very interesting kind of phenomenon. But I see I'm about to run out of my time. So once again, I want to thank David Feinkech and for sponsoring of this. I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.